A lot of video games and video game uh, and games on your phone, the developers design these games to keep you coming back for more. Have you ever noticed that there's a lot of games, in particular games on your phone, that you just can never win? In fact, there is no end game at all, right? And oftentimes they, they give you a goal, they make like these levels. Some people I know that do like different games, they're on like level 1,010 or something like that, and I'm like, when are you going to finally be done? Well, there is no end. I'll just always get to the next level. And they make this on, like this on purpose, because as soon as you finish one level, you feel like, you're con- like you've done something great, and your body actually releases a certain chemical to make you feel good, but then you realize that there's another level. There's a next phase, and you crave the next phase. So they design it to keep you coming back for more. You're never going to be finished. You're never going to have it complete. You're just going to come back over and over and over again. The goalposts will always be moving. You will never fully accomplish everything you want to in that game. So you have to come back, and that's how they get you hooked on that game. The designers have made it so you will never win. There is no end game, and they can have your attention forever. I think that's also the way religion typically works. Once you think you've attained a certain amount, you realize that you can never actually attain it all. Or, or maybe I should say it this way. There's always a goalpost for you to strive towards when it comes to religion, right? There's always some way that you can make yourself more holy. And if I only do this, then I'll become more righteous, right? And then you realize that you have obtained that goal and yet you don't quite feel holy. You don't quite feel righteous yet. So at first it feels really good because you're achieving things. You're making yourself look good. But in the end, it leaves you tired and confused and never good enough anyway. That's the way religions work. They make you compare yourself to someone else. They have you striving for something that is actually not attainable. And that's exactly what was going on with the uh, heresy in Colossae. That is the problem that Paul will address today. So in Colossae, what was happening is that they had blended a couple different ideas and they thought that they could become more holy and they could experience God more by doing more things. And oftentimes it was actually by not doing certain things. So if I could just give up some of the comforts of the world if I just would make myself a little less comfortable than my neighbor, then I could experience God more and I could become more holy. And so they were striving to be completed by their own actions. They thought that they could become whole, that they could become complete, that they could become fulfilled by doing stuff. And that's what Paul is going to address today as we continue on our series for him, by him and for him a study through Colossians. We named it by him and for him because this, uh, this heresy is all about how you can become more without Christ. And Paul is addressing this heresy and he wants you 
he wants to encourage those in Colossae, and I think it's very important for us to read this, that everything was made by Christ and for Christ, and you can never be complete without Christ. So that's what he's going to address today. Let's get into Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion or domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He begins this section with, and so. So last week we got into the introduction, and in the introduction he started this prayer, and he let them know that he prays for them on the continuous basis. Picking up in verse 3, we always thank God when we pray for you. So he's outlining that he's always praying for them, and then he says, since we heard of your faith, and then he's going to outline how, why he prays for them. So that was what we learned about last week, was that he prays for them and why he prays for them. This week, we see, and so from the day we heard of it, we do not cease to pray for you. And so he's, he's coming back into this prayer, and he's letting them know, not only do we always pray for you and why we pray for you, this is how we pray for you. And actually, Paul typically did this in his letters, and he would outline this prayer, and this prayer would kind of let him know what issues he's going to address. So he's telling them, this is how we pray for you. Here are some of the issues that we see in uh, what's happening in your church right now, and this is how we pray that God will address this issue. So, and so, from the day we heard it, from the day we heard of your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, tying back in all the way back to verse 3, asking that you may be filled. So here we go. Here's where we get into the contents of the prayer. This is what he, how he prays for them. This is what the contents are. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this term filled here, this term is plerau. And it can mean several different things. Uh, it's the same word that we saw last series when we got to do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So uh, I think it's important when you read to take context into the matter. So oftentimes we get caught up in word studies. I had a seminary professor who, who taught Greek, and he would always tell his beginning Greek 101 classes, my goal is to make it so you stop doing word studies. Now, he didn't always mean that. That wasn't an all-encompassing. But he had a point that he wanted to make. And the point is, within Greek, just like within English, there is a whole spectrum of meaning that a word can have. So, let's say I'm at the bike park with my kids. And my son does this awesome jump. And I say, man, that was sick. What do I mean? That was a really good jump. That was amazing. I'm in awe of that jump. But now we're at home, and he's not feeling so great. And I'm like, dude, you're sick. What do I mean? You're not feeling well. You are literally sick. Your body is going through some stuff. I don't want anything to do with it. So go into your room, and I'm going to go wash my hands. Right? That's... 
That's kind of the difference there, right? There's a whole spectrum of meaning within the English language. Within the Greek language is the same thing. So oftentimes people take, they go to word studies and they say, okay, what does this word mean? Well, they get to a whole spectrum and they leave out the context that the word is actually being used in and they actually can lose the meaning of the word in that specific context. So context is key. Context is so important on how we find meaning of a Greek word. Now, don't get me wrong. Once, you, once you've looked at the context, you can also look at the meanings and you can kind of like decipher, okay, based on this context, this is probably where it lies in the spectrum, right? So last, last study, we looked at uh, do not be filled with wine or not do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And we can look at the spectrum and we can say, okay, since he's contrasting being controlled by alcohol with being filled by the Spirit, then this filling of the Spirit is actually being controlled by the Spirit. That's what it meant in Ephesians. But what does it mean here? To be filled by the Spirit. Typically, this word, plerau, means to be uh, completed. It was actually, it began to be a reference as a ship that was full. So if a ship was totally filled up, then they would say, oh, that's plerau, it's completed. So as we look at it in the context here, I would say that it really, it means for us in this context, it means to be completed or to be filled or to be matured. So the prayer that he begins with is that you would be completed or filled or matured with knowledge. Part of the heresy in Colossae is that in order to be total, in order to be completed, in order to be mature, they would need more than Christ. So Paul begins his explanation of his prayer for them by addressing this heresy. He does this by explaining his prayer that they would be filled, they would be completed, they would be matured with the knowledge of His will. So that brings us to that they would be filled, completed, or matured with the knowledge. This word for knowledge is epigenosis. Epigenosis. You can say it with me. Ready? Epigenosis. All right, so this is kind of a special word in the Greek. Uh, the word for knowledge in the Greek is just gnosis. That's it. All right, and that just means like basic knowledge. But if you put epi in front of it, that means upper. So it'd be like literally upper knowledge, which came to mean spiritual knowledge. Now I think it's important that this is not Gnostic knowledge, but a revealed knowledge that can only come from God. So we see the gnosis, that's knowledge here on earth. And we don't necessarily need to know God. We don't need to know his revealed word to have this knowledge, right? There are a lot of atheists that know nothing of God, but have a great knowledge of how things on this world work. They have a lot of knowledge on physics. They have a lot of knowledge on how cars operate. There's all kinds of knowledge that atheists can have. That's gnosis. But this filling or this completion or this maturing isn't based on gnosis. It's based on epigenosis. It's based on the knowledge, the spiritual knowledge of God. That God has created this universe, that he's created it with spiritual laws, that God created to govern us, and this all pertains to his will. 
so that you may be filled or matured or completed with epigenosis of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So His will, a lot of theologians or a lot of people talk about what I would call God's mysterious will or the mysterious will of God. The mysterious will of God pertains to ideas or things like, who should I marry? Should I move to a different city? What should I major in? Is it time to change jobs? That's the mysterious will of God. That's not what this is a reference to. This is a reference to his revealed will, which can be found in the Bible. His will, his revealed will, is that all would come to salvation, that although we have all rebelled against God, he has a plan for our salvation. That includes our repentance, admitting that we have rebelled or sinned against him, and trusting him and his work on the cross for our salvation. On top of that, the word, his revealed will, also gives us moral principles that govern the universe that we should live by. And that is the knowledge that completes or fills or matures us. So his prayer begins that we would be filled or matured or completed with the epigenosis of his revealed will. That we would dive in to his word, to the Bible, and let the Bible mature us in the position that he has made us. And then he gives a little bit more in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So wisdom and understanding both end up becoming like a skillful living. Wisdom is skillful living. Uh, Understanding is the ability to discern what is true and what is false. So together someone can see what is really happening, what is true, and they can apply it to live skillfully. So the idea that I think he's getting at here is that since this modifies the knowledge, not his will, the idea that he's getting at is that we shouldn't be reading the Bible flippantly just to check a box. We shouldn't be taking things out of context to justify our own actions, but that we would be studying with understanding and wisdom, that we would be tuned into his word as we study it. We would try to understand and discern what his revealed will is. And as we understand it, as we study it with wisdom and understanding, we are completed or we are filled or we are matured by his will and actually gain more wisdom and more understanding. So then verse 10 begins to describe what happens as you are completed or filled or matured by his word. And I think it's important that before we even get into it, we state that this is not a try-harder idea. As you become more filled or completed, this behavior becomes more and more natural. It becomes more and more of who you are. So there's this idea out there sometimes that if I just work harder at the right behavior, then I will actually obtain. That's going back to that religion idea, right? But the idea that Paul is painting here is as you study his word, as you are completed or filled with the study of his word, 
then that actually begins to change who you are, your own identity, and it actually becomes easier and easier to live this out. So he starts off in verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So as gives us the purpose and the outflow of the study of his word. So he, he's letting us know that as we study his word, that completes us or that matures us in the position that he has made us. And then the outflow or the purpose of this study is that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To walk in a manner worthy means to behave or conduct yourself in a way that God has designed you to live. So when you are walking in a worthy manner, you are conducting yourself in a way that God has designed you to live. It's important to note that you don't walk this way to earn God's favor. Once again, that goes back to that religion aspect. That if I can just walk this way, then God will favor me. In fact, it's quite the opposite. God's favor is given to you so that you can walk this way. In fact, you won't even be able to walk this way without God giving you his grace and maturing you with his word. So as you let the Bible complete you, you begin to walk this way that is fully pleasing to him. And then you also begin to bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the epigenosis. Now it's interesting that as you study God's word, that matures you and completes you and allows you to begin to walk in a manner worthy of the way that he has designed you, which actually gives you better understanding of his word. And I think this is kind of a cycle. It's a, I call it an understanding and growth cycle. I actually have a couple slides this week. Uh, so it's, I call it a, an understanding and growth cycle. And it starts with understanding who you are. We've talked quite a bit about the cycle I have up here right now. Well, maybe not. Let's go over. There we go. So I've talked quite a bit about this cycle. This is the sin-shame cycle. In this cycle, you sin or maybe you feel shame. It could happen. Either one could be first. But the point is you sin and then you feel shame because of your sin. But you don't know how to deal with that shame. Shame is an incredibly unpleasant feeling. It's a negative feeling about yourself. And so you sin, you feel that shame, and you don't know how to deal with that shame. So oftentimes you turn back towards that sin to help numb the pain you felt with the shame in the first place. And you get into this vicious cycle where because you felt shame, you sin to help numb the pain of that shame, which only leads you back to the shame. Now, sometimes you don't feel the shame right away. Sometimes it's a day. Maybe it's a two days later. But you don't know how to deal with the shame, and so you run back to the sin to help numb the pain of the shame. And this could happen in all kinds of different ways, and it's really what happens with addiction as well. But I can't tell you how many men I've run into that have this cycle operating in their life when it comes to pornography. 
They promised themselves they wouldn't look again. There's no way. I hate myself when I do it. I hate the feeling afterwards. There's no way that I'm going to look at pornography again. And that's such incredible shame. And they're feeling it so deeply. And they don't know how to deal with the shame. But you know what? Those few seconds that I'm looking at pornography, it numbs my pain to the shame. And so they go back to the very sin that's causing the shame. Now we use that example of pornography, but think of all the other areas in life that that can occur in. Outbursts of anger. How often do you have an outburst of anger and you hate yourself for it? I swore I'd never yell at my kid again. And here I am yelling at them again. And you feel such an immense amount of shame. And then the next day, you don't know how to deal with that and you don't know how to deal with your kid and so you end up yelling at them again. This cycle applies to so many areas of our life. And I think there are three ways people typically deal with the sin-shame cycle. And the first way is, I think they just kind of stay in it and stay frustrated. You don't even realize that you're in it. And you stay frustrated because you feel the shame. You don't even know why you feel the shame other than you know that thing is horrible and you don't want to return to it. And yet, you know that the only way that you're really going to feel numb to the shame is by returning to that sin. Or maybe you turn to another sin, not realizing that that sin is also going to produce shame in your life. So that's one way people deal with it, is they just kind of stay in this frustrating cycle. Another way that I have seen a lot of people deal with the sin-shame cycle is that they know shame feels horrible. No one likes to feel shame. But they don't really know how to get rid of the sin either. And so instead of getting rid of the sin, they say, I'm going to get rid of the shame. And I'm going to embrace the sin, and that's how I'm going to get rid of the shame. And so what they do is they start justifying their action, and they say, everybody does it. In fact, this is how we were wired. God, I actually heard somebody, when it came to the, uh, the uh, subject of pornography, I actually know a guy that justified his pornography addiction by King David. Well, King David had thousands of wives, so obviously that's just the way God made men. And so it's okay for me to embrace this. Well, that's a whole lot of theological jujitsu to get to that outcome, right? But what was he doing? He hated the shame that he felt. He didn't know how to conquer the sin. And so he decided he was just going to embrace the sin in hopes that he would no longer feel the shame. And I don't think this is actually getting you out of the cycle. What this is actually doing is driving you deeper into the cycle. So many problems with this is that now you're okay with this sin, but what's going to happen is you're going to take the step to another sin. And that other sin is going to produce more shame. But you've learned that the way to get rid of shame isn't to deal with your sin, but to embrace the sin. So you take a deeper step into that. Well, eventually you'll get used to that sin so you won't feel as much shame, or you'll justify it so you won't feel as much shame. So what do you do? You take another step deeper. 
And you're only going deeper and deeper into the sin-shame cycle until you get to despair. And now you're in a bitterness and despair cycle instead of a sin-shame cycle. And you don't even know how you got there. So that's the second way people deal with a sin-shame cycle. The third way that you can deal with a sin-shame cycle is to come to Jesus. Realize that you are a slave to this sin that's got you trapped in this cycle. And realize that Jesus can free you from that sin. And that you no longer have to feel shame. Because there is no longer shame for those who are in Christ. So, getting out of the sin-shame cycle, I think you can get into the understanding and growth cycle. That's the way to get out. So, the understanding and growth cycle is the opposite. You are completed in your identity by God's Word. So, you go through God's Word, you help God's Word find your identity, and you begin to live out God's Word in your life which only produces more understanding of God's Word in your life, which continues to complete you and give you that growth. And you continue to progress in that growth until the day that you die. So I think the easy way to think about this cycle, we could explain it more and more, and I think that's what Paul's getting at here right here, is that you'll be filled, you'll be completed, you'll be matured with the epigenosis of His will, of His Word, And as you do that, you'll be equipped to walk in a manner fully pleasing to Him, and you'll be bearing fruit, good fruit in every every good work, and you'll be increasing in the epigenosis of God. So you'll see that cycle right there. I think the easier way to say it is there is an understanding and growth cycle, that the more you understand God's Word, the more you'll grow, and the more you'll be completed, and the more you'll be able to walk in it, and the more you grow, the more you'll actually understand. And you get caught up in that cycle. I think it's important to note that unlike the sin-shame cycle, which either can come first, Either you feel shame or, you, or you've sinned, which produces the shame. I think this is also important for us to understand as Christians that some people step into the sin-shame cycle because they've been shamed by other Christians. I don't necessarily think it's our duty to shame people. We can let Scripture stand on its own. We can let the Holy Spirit do convicting. So our job is to stand firm on Scripture. But sometimes Christians think it's their duty to shame other people. I can't tell you how often I saw this. When I was a program director at a summer camp, there was always the girl that was like the modesty police girl, and she would run around policing other girls, telling them how immodest they were. I think oftentimes the modesty police girl was operating out of a place of insecurity, She was insecure with who she was, and so she thought it was much easier, instead of dealing with who she was and her identity in Christ, it was much easier to to point out all the other girls' flaws. And she would run around and point out every single girl's flaw and tell, I would watch her as she would confront other girls on how immodest they were. And what was she really doing? She was producing shame in their life, and she was shaming them. And was doing a lot of damage. So, the sin-shame cycle can start either with sin or with shame. The understanding growth cycle starts with understanding. 
Understanding who you are in Christ. Understanding how he has changed you. Who he has made you to be. It cannot start with growth because that goes back to legalism. If I think I can just power my way through it and grow myself into understanding, that's relying on my own power, that's relying on myself, and I can't jump into that cycle. I'm actually just staying stuck in the sin-shame cycle if I think I can do it on my own growth. So it has to start with understanding. But once you have that understanding, that understanding produces the growth, which produces more understanding, and I just think it's so cool to watch how God does that. So when you understand God's mercy and God's grace and God's love displayed through Christ, when you have that understanding, then even in your failure, you can leave the sin-shame cycle. Because when I understand all that Christ has done for me and all that He is and who He has made me to be, even when I mess up, even when I yell at my kids again, even when I accidentally lust after that girl, even when I do whatever sin it is that you're struggling with, even when you fall back into that, you can remind yourself, but that's not who God calls me in. God calls me holy and righteous and blameless. I no longer have to beat myself up to make myself feel better about my life. I can look back towards Christ and say, Christ, I was a sinner in rebellion against you. And you died for me anyways because you love me. And I'm not defined by all of my failures, but I am defined by who you have created me to be. And so that's how we get out of the sin-shame cycle and jump onto the understanding growth cycle. And then he explains a little bit more he says, being strengthened in all, with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and prayer, patience with joy. So one of the ways that we walk and live according to the new life God has given us is to be strengthened by him. Once again, this is not a try harder religion. You cannot live by your own might. I think of it this way. Uh, I cannot lift a vehicle. We could go out to that parking lot right now, and there's not a single vehicle I can lift up. And it doesn't matter how many weights I lift. It doesn't matter how long I train for. I know my body. I could even do steroids. I know my body. I was not designed to lift a vehicle. If I try, I will hurt something. Something in my back will strain. I may not walk for a few days. But... We do have tools that can lift vehicles. There's several people in this church that have hydraulic lifts. I could drive my vehicle over to their hydraulic lift, push a button, and it's really easy. I won't hurt anything. I might strain my finger, right? Chip a fingernail. I don't know. But that's the kind of way I think of it, is that if I'm trying in my own strength to walk pleasing to God, if I just try harder, I will fail. And I'll get stuck back into the sin-shame cycle because of my failure. But as you are completed, filled, or matured by His Word, laying it define every aspect of who you are, His strength becomes a natural tool that you begin to live with. So He begins to strengthen you all the more for this life. 
So we are strengthened to His glorious might. So His glorious might is a reference, or His glory, I should say, is a reference to all that God is. That's God's glory. All that He is. Everything that He is. And if you'll remember, Moses asked to see God's glory. Let me see your full glory. And what did God reply? If you do, you'll die. Think about that. I can think about going to like the ocean or the Grand Canyon and seeing the glory of the Grand Canyon and it leaves you in awe, right? Or going to the ocean and seeing how vast and expansive it is and just being in awe of it. And that glory is pretty amazing. But I'm nowhere near dead. God's glory is so amazing that if you were to take it all in, it would kill you. That's the might that we are strengthened by. That's pretty amazing to think about. But if you are operating out of your own strength, you're only going to fail. You have to turn back to His glorious might and let His glorious might strengthen you. And what does it strengthen you for? All endurance and patience. Now, endurance and patience uh, are uh, synonyms. I don't think that Paul is trying to make two different points here. I don't think that he's saying he's strengthening you for endurance and he's strengthening you for patience, but I think he's emphasizing this one aspect of our lives that God is strengthening us for. And that aspect is to the ability to withstand hardships. Whether it's a relational hardship or whether it's a circumstantial hardship. God is strengthening us to endure. Sometimes we think God is strengthening us to win a war. God is strengthening me so I can go crush the enemy. That's not what God is strengthening you for. God is strengthening you so that you can endure the hardships of your life. So when we are impatient, when we are quick to anger, when we lack the ability to endure a hardship, it reveals that we are operating out of our own strength not God's glorious might. But patient endurance is not the only thing His glorious might strengthens us for. It also produces joy, giving thanks to the Father. So joy is a greater emotion than happiness. It's a deep contentedness. And so it is a deep contentedness that you will have as you give thanks to God. No matter what the circumstance is, maybe it's a long line. Maybe it's bad traffic driving down Route 66 on a Friday afternoon. Boy, is that a difficult hardship. And yet, how often do we get angry about it? But when we operate out of His strength, we can have patience in all of those circumstances. 
and we can give joy to God. Even as we're stuck in traffic, we can have joy. So these are the natural outflows of being strengthened by His glorious might. Are you joyfully thankful in your life, or are you an angry grumbler? And then he goes on to explain who this Father is, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, or, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul recalls why we can be thankful, because God has qualified you to be. It's important to note that it's nothing you have done. If we were applying to be a saint who gets an inheritance and walks in the light, you put in your resume, underneath qualifications, in your resume and in my resume, it would be horrible. There are n there's nothing in your resume that qualifies you to be a saint, to, be, to have an inheritance, and walk in the light. Every single one of us, our resume would be full of sin and rebellion against God. And no matter how many good works you could have, no matter how, how many good works you could squeeze in there, he would still see your rebellion as your qualifications. But what has God done? He has taken your resume and placed Christ's resume on top of it. So when he looks at your resume, he no longer sees yours, but Christ's. And Christ's resume is blemish-free. It is perfect. And so when he looks at qualifications for you to be a saint, to have an inheritance, and walk in the light, he no longer sees all of your faults, but he sees Christ's perfection. And that allows us to live in that. So he no longer sees your qualifications, but he sees Christ's perfect qualifications. There is no blemish on it, and now it belongs to you. So based on his work, he has qualified us to be a saint. A saint is someone that has been set apart for him to have an inheritance. The inheritance that we have is that every spiritual blessing known to God and to live in the light. To live in the light gives us the ability to discern and see things clearly. He goes on to explain this idea next with, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This term redemption was used to buy a slave's freedom. The idea here is that we were slaves to sin. Bound by darkness. Have you ever wondered why you wanted to stop a sin, but you couldn't? Like a dog returning to his vomit, you kept returning to the very action that you despised. That very action that produced shame in your life that very action that made you hate yourself, why did you return to it? And the answer is, you're a slave to it. It controls you. 
and no matter how hard you try, you cannot escape its grasp. Oftentimes, in our humanity, we think, if I just try harder, I can be a better person. If I just try harder, I can overcome this sin. But being a slave to sin reveals that the goalposts will always move. You're never going to be good enough. You can never overcome your sin. The slave master will always return. Right now, there is a lawsuit in New York because people who have been arrested while under the influence of alcohol can lessen their sentence by serving a 12-step program. Now, what's the problem? Why are they suing? Why is there a lawsuit? Because every 12-step program is religious in some way. And the reason is because every 12-step program recognizes your inability to free yourself from addiction. And I would say the same is true for every sin. You cannot free yourself from sin. But God can. God can free you. So are you yearning to be done with the sin-shame cycle? Are you ready to experience freedom? It starts with the realization that you have rebelled against God, but that He loves you with such a great love that He paid the price to set you free. And as you put your trust in Christ, you begin to leave the sin-shame cycle. And as you understand who Christ has made you to be, that He has taken you, being dead in your trespasses and sins, living in darkness, and has transferred you to being a son of the light that has an inheritance, that He calls you a saint and holy and righteous. As you begin to understand that, you leave the sin-shame cycle, and you step into the understanding growth cycle, and you begin to mature and who God has created you to be. Dear Lord, we thank You so much that we don't have to rely on our own strength, but that we can look towards You and Your glorious might, that we can be strengthened by it all. And we pray that You would help us to understand who we are because of You. And as we understand that, You would bring fruit to our life. You would bear that fruit and help us to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you, that is worthy of you. And as we walk in that, we would have a greater understanding of what you've done. In your name we pray.